Sarah, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time to come in and speak to me today on Culture Corner, where I am speak to leaders in tech about how they create uh, strong cultures and high-performing teams. So it's brilliant to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Adrian. Pleasure. No problem. No problem at all. Obviously, we've spoken a few times, so I've got an understanding of you as an individual, obviously, as Hedge, um, of Hedgehog Lab as the, uh, as the company. But for anybody who's listening that doesn't know, it'd be brilliant if you could just give you an overview of who you are, your business, size of it, locations, number of people, etc. Yeah, great. Uh, I am Sarat Pedredla. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Hedgehog Lab. Hedgehog Lab is a human-centered tech consultancy. Um, we specialize in uh, basically core things, which is user experience and design, mobile and web app development, and something that's been scaling very fast for us, AI services. We were founded in Newcastle, uh, Newcastle upon Tyne, 2007, so we're 16 year olds this year. Uh, we've gone through a very interesting journey of scaling over the last five or six years. We're private equity funded uh, by one of the biggest private equity firms in the country called BGF. Um, and we are roughly right now about 110 people and growing consistently. We work with uh, brands all across the world. Our business is roughly split 70% in the UK and 30% in America. So we're a truly global tech company and uh, we're on an exciting journey to effectively 5x that business over the next five years. Wow. I can't wait to hear about this journey. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Sarah. I think we're going to talk about the the, the culture journey today, aren't we, of Hedgehog Lab. Um, so I thought one of the uh, great areas to start with, we'll just we wind it all the way back to the beginning, back in 2007, and just to get an understanding of why you set up the, the, the business. You know, what is your what is your why or what was your why? Yeah, the why is a great question, really. And I think uh, there's a seminal book by Simon Sinek that talks about start with the why. Yeah. Um, and it was really interesting because, you know, I was about 25 when I, when I thought about setting up Hedgehog Lab. And one of the things we did pretty early on in terms of culture was setting the culture framework. We actually wrote something we call the culture framework that has persisted for 16 years, wow. even before we set up the company and before we knew what we were actually going to do because Hedgehog Lab has gone through a couple of incarnations. So we weren't, we weren't always doing I guess, professional services. We actually started out as a product company, ironically. Uh-huh. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a testament to the culture framework we set up that has lasted for so long. And the first thing in the culture framework, so our culture framework is broken up into kind of five things, really. Purpose, why do you exist? Okay. Mission, you know, what's the difference you're going to make in the world? Vision, you know, what is the achievement that you want to kind of achieve? Yeah. Uh, values, you know, obviously, what are the things you believe in? And behaviors, which is how you're going to behave to demonstrate those values. So those are all documented. We share it with our team. And so purpose is the interesting one. Um, me and my co-founder were working in agency business prior to then. And it might seem all the craze right now around human capital and, you know, statements like our team is our greatest asset. Yeah. But in 2005, 2006, this wasn't the norm, right? No, we were in the, you know, wild old days of consulting and agency business where 70, 80 hours were common. Um, the only way you made money is to overwork your people, burn them out and treat them as factory resources. And, and to be honest, the whole industry was like that. There wasn't, you know, a particular company you pointed to and thought, you know, they had an amazing culture because that was accepted as the norm. Everybody accepted that. Um, so, one of, you know, one of the things we wrote down as the purpose of Hedgehog Lab is to create a place that empowers talented people to do the best work of their life. 
And the reason we wrote that was we, we felt like a lot of organizations were actively working. They would hire some amazing people because I believe in this inane belief that people are talented and good by default, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I'm a high trust person. And you'd hire these incredible people. I worked with some incredible people at my business uh, that I worked with before. And actually, the business I used to work with was actually a pioneer in terms of some of that culture things, etc. But the reality was, because the industry norm was accepted that we were just factory resources, we brought the industrial model to professional services, there was no real thinking around, you know, what what that, that people assets mean for the business yeah. and what these purpose values and this culture framework meant. Most of the businesses I'd interviewed with when I was young or worked with or for didn't really have a culture framework. Most even didn't know the purpose. You know, you, if you'd asked young entrepreneurs, then what was your purpose? Is like, you know, I wanted to make some money. Yeah. You know, this yeah. was an easy way to do it. So there was no real grand idea. You know, Silicon Valley, you know, with Amazon and Apple, was promoting purpose, but certainly in the UK, I didn't think there's many businesses that were set up with, with a clear culture framework in mind. So for us, the why was almost a simple, I joke about it, a bet with my co-founder, can we create a company that didn't necessarily have a bigger strategy than what happens if we bring together a bunch of really talented people yeah. and empower them to do the best work of their life? And that was simply the why, really. Yeah, that's fascinating because like you said, you were ahead of your time, really, going back to 2007, weren't you? Setting up that framework before the business had even begun. Yeah. So I think I, I was going to ask you sort of what was the culture like then and how does it differ from, from what it is now? Because I was thinking, as a, we're, obviously, you know, we're a small startup, scale up business, there's six of us at the moment. I think a lot of the focus when you set up a business is get the revenue through the door, you know, get, get the sales going, get the revenue through the door. But then as soon as you start to hire, whether you like it or not, a culture starts to exist because you're bringing people together. So, yeah, I'd be intrigued to find out how how it's different from from the start to, to where you are now. That's a great question, and I've been having a debate with somebody recently about should the culture come first or the business come first. I mean, there is a you know there is certainly some corners where it's like you don't want to build the culture at the expense of a business, or you know you want to build a business at the expense of a culture. And I I don't see them. I don't see the dichotomy in it. I think both of them are important. So to your point, yes, in the early days of the business, it is all about survival and just building a platform. The one thing I will say is, how does the culture differ from what it was at the start to how it is now? I don't see culture as a fixed point in time, right? I see the culture framework as a fixed point in time. And what I mean by that is the things we wrote down and the things we believed in, you know, what was our purpose? You know, the purpose is historical, right? Yeah. No matter where we go, you know, tomorrow we might decide to start making computers, for example, physical desktop computers. It still wouldn't change our purpose because that talks about the history, why we existed in the first place. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the other things can evolve, right? Our values can change. So yeah. I think for me, culture is not a fixed point of time. You know, our, there's no two months in which our culture is the same. Our culture ebbs and flows. There have been years in which our culture has been brilliant, which has resulted in great results, etc. And there have been years in which our culture has been terrible. So I, I, I'm at pains to explain this to people. Because we have a culture framework, etc., it doesn't necessarily mean our culture has always been brilliant. If you measure it over a graph, it's like that, more than like that. 
And that's because culture is a sum of the people you've got. And as organization grows, you bring in some people that are not aligned with the culture. And I don't think that's a massively controversial or surprising thing to say as an organization scales. That's why big organizations lose culture, because how do you keep those values, those behaviors and that purpose when you're, say, 5,000, 500 or, you know, even 50 people? So it evolves. And, and for me, culture is a sum of your people. And if that's the case, because we've had the diversity of people from the day we founded, you're always going to have a different culture, slightly different yeah. every month or every every time you hire a new person. Yeah, exactly. It's an infinite, just to, to quote Simon Sinek, it's an infinite, infinite game, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it constantly evolves. Like I think you hit it on the nail on the head that every time you hire somebody, it's going to have an impact in the culture, isn't it? And I think nowadays it's it's becoming even more so because you've got multi-generations in within your business exactly. and, and with lots of different people, lots of different generations all looking for different things. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it is it's something you need to continually work on. Mm -hmm. So how have you, how have you found that? How have you found the, the journey? Have you, when you're looking at culture, I suppose culture starts, starts at the top, doesn't it? With the, with, with the, lead, with the leaders and you, you need to get the leaders on board as you're taking them on that journey. But not everybody, some people bought into the initial, I imagine some people bought into the initial culture. 100%. And not everybody's with the business all the way through the journey, are no. they? So, and you found that some people won't change. They said, listen, so I, I joined you at the X, X position. The culture was this then. I bought into that. Now it's why. Have you found you've had, you've had to deal with that? 100%. I mean, I have literally had people tell me in the early days when we, you know, the big, the big inflection point was when we came to 20 people, right? And it might sound surprising, but you know, 20 people doesn't seem like a big company. But I had people literally go, I did not join a 20 people company. I wanted it to be us five around a Nando's table, you know, which is what we used to do. Our business meetings be around a Nando's table. That was what they joined. And people, and you know what? I have a lot of respect for people like that. I have a lot of respect for people who have clarity in what they want. There is no right or wrong with that. You know, if you want to work in a five people team, and I know many, very talented engineers, designers, technology business people that only want to work in five people teams or six people teams. And actually, if you think about, you know, the Agile Manifesto and where technology is going, there's a general thesis that smaller teams are much more efficient anyway. Yeah. Um, because the more people you introduce, the more complexity you introduce. So if someone really wanted to, you know, if there's someone's passion is, say, engineering, and they didn't want to evolve into the other things that bigger organizations have, like communication, stakeholder management, etc. Then working in a 50 or 100 people organization is not going to be, you know, exciting and interesting for you as it would work in the five people organization where you intimately know each other, you know, etc. So we've been through multiple stages. 20 was a big stage for us. 50 was another stage for us. Uh, and same with 100, where at each of these stages, you know, we, 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 we had both people recognize that this was not for them. This is not the company they wanted to, you know, that you'd go for beers with your, you know, with your colleagues, you know, when you're 10 people and you'd know everybody and you'd know what they did on the weekend, etc. Whereas when you're 100 people, you probably don't even know half the names of your colleagues. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a very different, uh, you know, equation. The other thing that goes alongside that, people making that decision also is, some of the people that are right for a 10, 20, 30 people company are not the people that are right for a 50, 70, 100, 500 people company. So not only have people decided that the culture was not the right one for them in terms of moving on. And I, and I said, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, I think it's, it's great that people have that conviction and know exactly what they want. Yeah. But also 
we had to decide sometimes and I had to decide as a leader to say you're not the right person for this part of this journey which actually is a much more difficult conversation yeah. uh, if someone leaves on their own volition you know it's 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 natural you know companies people move on people people move on from companies but when 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 you're not pushed out but when you're you know when somebody makes a decision that you need to leave the company and particularly if you're bought into where you are and you know you have a blind spot in terms of how you grow yeah. that can be really difficult but i think you know in retrospect you know it was tough when we were doing those things little decisions at the time we did it but in retrospect it's always proven to be the right thing for the business yeah yeah is that something is that something you found difficult as a as a leader um having those conversations with people thinking right okay adrian you you were good enough or you were the right fit to take me from a to b or to, sorry to take us from a to yeah. b but you can't take us from B to C. Yeah, I still find it difficult. I hate it. I hate it because it's I'm a I'm a natural people pleaser, yeah. and particularly when I founded the company, part of the reason why I was attracted to the whole culture mindset was there's almost like a dopamine hit to having a great culture, right? Yeah. To work in something like that, you know, you feel part of something like you said, purpose and bigger than yourself. It's intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic motivation. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I really struggled and I was terrible at it and I'm not sure I'm any better at it now. It's just I've forced myself to do it more than I have, you know, 15 years ago is is having those difficult conversations. I think one of the big mistakes I made in the early part, and you know, inevitably I was young, hadn't gone through the journey, was I equated a, a great culture with being nice. Um, yeah. And actually the, the evolution I've now had is a great culture is not about being nice, it's about being kind. And it's also about performance because to the point of, and this, this is where the conflict between do you build a great culture at the risk of a business is, if you're building a, a, a commune, you know, or a, or, a, or a, you know, this is not a place where we're all coming in to, you know, have fun. It's still yeah. a, pe people expect to be paid, you know, nobody wants to be paid under the market rate. Nobody wants uh, to, to, to forgo bonuses. People want the extrinsic motivators like money, yeah. but you only get that by delivering on the business performance. So I think the evolution for me has been, I've really struggled in the early years to reconcile, you know, the, 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 the balance between, you know, business performance and culture. Um, and like I said, we've been through waves when the culture has been bad and the business performance has struggled and we built it back up, etc. cetera. Uh, but I really struggled. And, you know, for a lot of the early years, I think a lot of the mistakes I made was because I didn't have those difficult conversations, yeah. I, I probably did a lot of disservice. And that's my point between nice and kind. I was probably very unkind to people because I let them continue in roles and I set them up to fail when actually I should have had that conversation six, 12 months earlier. I'm getting better in it, but I'm, I don't think I'm perfect still. On that point... I think that's something that's a real growth area for me. I'm I'm not very good at giving giving bad news or you know get, getting through those situations. That's definitely a learning curve for me, without a shadow of a doubt. To be honest, unless you're a psychopath, I don't think anybody enjoys that, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Some people are good at it, but if you enjoy it, then surely there's something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But could you educate me on the nice and kind bit because? I noticed, um, I think he's a good friend of yours on LinkedIn, it's, it's Terry Brown, is it Terry Brown? Terry Brown, yeah. he's brilliant. You should interview him, by the way. Yeah, yeah. he did. Uh, I think I, I noticed it because you commented on it. I think mm -hmm. he put a post out about being nice and being kind, didn't he? Mm -hmm. you know, the, what's 
what's the um, logic behind that? that, that it is, uh, and actually, Terry obviously, you know, is, is a big fan of uh, you know great leaders in this area that talk about it, and you know, there's a couple of people like Kim Scott that talks about this. Kim Scott has a great book, obviously, Radical Candor, yeah, and she talks about ruinous empathy and you know, aggressive, obnoxious, you know, etc. And in that. And, 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 and I'll give a great example. You know, I had a situation in the past where one of my leaders, um, you know, one of our team members was put in front of a client. They performed horrendously. It wasn't an interview, but they were vetting the, the team members. So what the leader did was effectively give them the wrong feedback to not hurt their feelings. So they said something like, oh, the client had other priorities. It was a time zone issue or something. They chose somebody else. But the actual truth was this person didn't answer the questions. They didn't, you know, so the real feedback was that the client gave us a, and so my team member thought they were being kind to the person by not telling them the truth. But in my view, that was stunting their development. Now that person has gone on, they've gone on to great things and both of them, you know, have gone to great things. But if that was me, I would have rather had the honest feedback. So being nice is saying, oh, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, you know, some, there's some other reasons, etc. So the outcome is still being the same. But the, for other reason, being kind is saying, look, I really value you and your skills and your talent as a person. And it might be hard to hear. But by the way, the client said, you didn't answer the questions right. You didn't tackle the, the, the real problem. You didn't, you know, address this. Those are the things that would have helped that person grow. And for me, kindness is about doing those conversations. Because trust me, I'm not sure I would have had that conversation. So it's easy for me to sit here and say, well, one of my leaders should have done this. But actually, but whether I would have had that or not, it's still the difference between nice and kind. Nice is to say things that people want to hear, uh, still giving feedback, but in a way that doesn't really help them grow and improve. Yeah. Whereas kind is, and kindness is about caring. You care person. That's where Kim Scott comes from. When you give feedback to people, you have to come from a place where you're caring personally. And if you really want them to grow and improve, you have to give that. And that's where I see the difference between nice and kind. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you very much for that. You're helping that. You're helping that person evolve, aren't you? And mm -hmm. develop and learn and, and yeah. And that's one yeah. of your fundamental well, duties as a leader, right? Yeah. Whether you're the CEO, whether you're a low-level mid-manager you have to work around how you improve people and by being nice you're not helping them improve no not at all not at all we talk about um building strong cultures and high performing teams and that kind of thing you people need to feel a, a sense of well they're bought into the values aren't they shared values um common purpose and goals and they need to feel a sense of, of belonging you're obviously from the outside and, and talking to you and I, I know that you're doing this you're building a really strong culture um, within your business, how do you ensure that people who you hire within the business feel that sense of belonging? Um, they find that psychological safety within Hedgehog Labs, and they can bring their they can bring their their, their true person to to, to work. As, if you yeah, like. that's a great question. And actually, th there is a point there which I think is really pertinent. You talk about me building a great culture, and I think that is a big problem because I by myself cannot build a culture, right? Yeah. Because a culture is a sum of its parts. And like I said, we have had situations in which, you know, and I'm accountable, so it's, it's, I'm not blaming other people where there are people, 
you know, two or three people completely misaligned with the values of the business and the culture, whether it's politics, whether it's gossip, whether it's, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. all of those things that generally don't align with how we want to work. And that destroys the culture. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, um, you know, what, what you say or do. And actually, I quite often get criticism sometimes when things are not going great, because what I say on LinkedIn sometimes doesn't reflect what people uh, on the ground in my team you know obviously you know it's a big team 100 people so I don't know if two people are, but I think but that is the truth because all it takes is two people that interaction between two people for that person to experience a bad culture so I think that you make a really good point how do you bring your team members how do you make sure everybody's bought into that that vision the purpose etc yeah. I think there are three things we can do the first thing we can do is be explicit as leaders right so one of the reasons, for example, why I do what I do on LinkedIn, despite, you know, people saying, well, my experience doesn't match that necessarily because we're not a perfect organization, right? Yeah. But, but for me, the belief is if you keep sharing the message, you know, and one of the things you get told as CEOs is communicate, 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 and not just communicate to your team, but the, I want to see a world in which we can all work like this, right? You know, you talk about the purpose. I fundamentally, I'm not doing this. Yes, you know, you should do this because it's good for your business. Yes, you should do this because it makes better business sense. But actually, that's a different reason. The fact that there's a good business outcome is a plus for me. I'm doing this because these are things I fundamentally believe in. Yeah. You know, this is, you know, we talked about earlier about identity and what, what, what sort of values you've got. So I think it's really important we communicate. We really kind of be clear about that. And that's why having a documented culture framework, I think, is really important. I think, secondly, you have to get your leaders to buy in. Um, you know, Gallup says the single biggest influence of uh, employee experience and satisfaction in a company is the manager. That's it. Not, not, not Sarat, the CEO. It's the manager. If, if, if there's somebody two levels down, you know, my cultural values and my framework uh, will not matter because ultimately what matters is that person that's interacting with their manager. So you have to equip and prepare your managers. And frankly, in the past, we've done a really poor job of that because I have internalized and, you know, held so much importance around these things. I've just assumed that managers are just going to absorb that and get involved in the, in the, in the story as much as I do. And I think we, we, we need to do better and we are doing better on how we, you know, develop the leaders, support them, train them, et cetera. And the last one is an easy one. You have to hold people accountable, you know, so it's easy for people to say slogans like we hire and fire by our culture, but actually most people don't. They just don't because it becomes difficult. You've got a star performer who's a bit of a jerk, you know, or, you know, they're doing amazing work and they're getting all the numbers in, they're delivering the projects to time. And it's a tough decision to make to say, you know, we're going to get rid of you because you don't align with the culture. Um, and I know, I know I, I failed in that a lot of times because, you know, you have to think about the business. But I think if you hold accountability to that culture, then what other people can see is, oh, okay, this culture is not just something we write on paper and stick on posters. This is the code by which we live. So the accountability piece is hugely important, both praising and hiring and firing based on that culture. Yeah, it almost solidifies your culture if you're actually getting rid of or removing somebody who is bringing in the numbers, doing a great job, but they're a real dis disruption within the business. Exactly. You know, it's you can't have one person on the pedestal because it's it's eroding everything that you do. Exactly, um, but but it's it's, it, and it's not just even if they're not a star performer. You know, just failing to tackle that. You know, if, if you talk about one of my biggest regrets and mistakes over the sixteen years of the company. 
is, is failing to tackle the, the, the people and the behaviors that effectively destroyed our culture. And trust me, when I've tackled them in the past, they've not always been popular uh, because inevitably, you know, the way organizations work is people with relationships, etc. Yeah. And, you know, not everybody agrees on the decision, but, but the reality was my only, my only regret is that I'd not done some of these things sooner than I'd, I'd done them. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's very difficult to, to do, you know, have full empathy for leaders to do it. But I think the other thing is, a cu- culture is a sum of your actions. It's some of your people, but it's also some of your actions. Like I said, it doesn't matter what you say. If you don't behave in alignment with those values, then it's just a nice piece of paper that you kind of share around the company. Yeah. Quite often they're just words written on a wall, aren't they? And if you're, if you're banging the drum, but you don't live by your, live by those values and actions and behaviors, then you, you're wasting your time really, mm. aren't you? Because mm. your workforce can, can, can see through it. Yeah. Um, to, when you're bringing new people into the business, um, do you have a process that you bring on board to to help um, solidify them into the team, to help them feel that belonging, to to, to really get to under uh, understand them? Uh, yes, we do, and honestly, I think we could get better. You know, and I think that's the, that's the other thing we have in our culture, which is this growth mindset. Because I don't think you're ever the finished article, and yeah. um, so you know, our people team have done incredible work over the last few years in terms of evolving how people are onboarded. Uh, like I said, lead, we've chosen leaders. We've been lucky that we've chosen some leaders who are really naturally aligned with the culture and the values that we do. Uh, but I think having a having a more formal onboarding thing is really good. We can do more. You know, we come to this uh, Tuckman Jensen model of how teams form, etc. I still think sometimes, you know, in organizations, people onboard well onto the company, but they probably don't onboard well onto a particular engagement yeah. because you throw a team together and you expect them to start work week in yeah. and everybody's, nobody knows each other's strengths, the rules of engagement, whether, you know, somebody prefers Zoom. So I think there are places where we can evolve because I think sometimes we can forget that we're all working with human beings because we're all centralized on what our problem is and what we do. Yeah. So there is work we need to do in terms of improving that. But currently, like I said, we have structured onboarding. We have some processes across supporting people coming into the company. So for example, one of the things I do is I do a welcome to Hedgehog Lab talk where I talk about the history, the purpose of the company. So we talk through the culture framework and I challenge the people that come in to say, I want you to hold each other accountable for this. I will hold you accountable for this. And I want you to hold me accountable for this. And when you say that, you know, it crystallizes to people to say, okay, this is serious. It's not just a bunch of words that you publish on a website. People are, you know, I'm being asked to hold people accountable for this. And actually, more importantly, like I said, words are pointless, but when they do hold you accountable, you then need to put your hand up and say, I'm really sorry, you know, I missed the value there and I missed the mark. And this is what I'm going to do to fix it. Yeah, that's great. I like that. It's open, transparent. Um, you're breaking down the barriers, aren't you? You're saying, I am accessible or everybody within the business is accessible. You know, feel free to, to, no, not criticize me. Pull me up if I'm not living living by the values. Um, but it's a big thing about how you, if you're inviting people to do that, it's how you respond to that as well, isn't it? Exactly. And by the way, when you invite criticism, it comes very quickly. <laughs> yeah. And that's because, like I said, everybody has a, everybody has a worldview, and everybody has you know everybody has a different way of looking at. It. It's not that they're wrong or right, but everybody has a different worldview, and you have to be open to that. That sometimes have that curiosity to say, mm, okay, maybe. 
maybe I disagree with it, but surely what is the perspective that they're bringing? So you've got to be open to that. It's really tough because, you know, trust me, when you invite people for criticism, you do get a lot of criticism. That's just the way the world works. Yeah, it's very hard, isn't it, as well? You've got to think, right, okay, take it on board. Because how you react is it will result in whether that person is confident enough to, to, to come to you again. Exactly. And if you're wanting to evolve and, and, and change and grow, you need that feedback, don't you? Exactly. So it's tough. Um, over the last sort of 16, 17 years, what, are the, what, what challenges have you, you experienced on your, your cultural journey and uh, how, have you, how have you overcome those or any major challenges? Um, uh, you know, really obvious ones, like I said, you know, uh, I've talked about a couple already where I don't think sometimes I've taken the tough decisions. You know, you, I could see that, you know, we call it the disturbance in the force at, at the company. Um, I could see that there was something wrong, but you couldn't pinpoint it. And there was just, you know, two or three sides of the story. And, you know, you just go around and try and like be diplomatic when actually what it needed to be is decisive. Even if you made the wrong decision, sometimes you have to be decisive. Uh, I was really tremendously bad at that for a long time, you know, and I still don't know if I'm perfect at that. I, I, blind spots, I think blind spots is a big one. Like I said, you know, I have, there have been times when, like I said, you know, I, I will find out that there's, you know, a level of toxicity or problems going on at level in the organization that I as CEO would not have observed. So, you know, obviously the, the team would then fire, like, you know, there's a bit of a disconnect between me. So I've tried to change that. For the last few years, I've held skip level meetings, so I meet people on the ground. Yeah. Uh, we do employee engagement service, and you know, I read it all. You know, I'm a bit sad in that <laughs> I read everything everybody says. Obviously, you've got to be careful and you've got to digest and process what they say. Yeah. Um, so I think it been really terrible at that. Um, I think sometimes we fail to bring people along with us. You know, I think we've seen a lot of criticism. You know, there are individuals who don't align with our culture, but you know, it, it's it's funny. I think particularly in the business world we're coming with because it's all about the individual sometimes if you're the problem but you don't know you're the problem and you think everybody else is the problem um, and I think we fail with that to integrate those individuals and make themselves aware that actually you're spending a lot of time complaining about this culture but you do realize you're the problem yeah. and, and, and that's where it becomes an issue um, I think, you know, I think one of the things we don't get taught enough at university is introspection, self-reflection. Those are skills that people don't come with. So I think that we could have done better at that. And certainly we could have done better at how do we embed this culture from, you know, I've done a lot of work at my senior level, executive level. You know, I spend a lot of time. We probably do it at the middle level, but we haven't done a lot of work at the lower level. And that's where historically we've seen some problems on the day-to-day -day ground. Okay. You're inevitably going to have those challenges, yeah. but I'm a high accountability person. And you think, well, you know, you can't just be a victim and say, oh, well, of course that's going to happen. It's my responsibility as the leader and the CEO to figure out a way to not make it happen. So we're thinking about ways to do it. Um, and like I said, you know, I'm not going to sit here and claim, you know, on a 16-year horizon, you know, if you did like a report card for us, it won't be like a 10 out of 10 every year. It'll more be like, you know, 7 out of 10, 4 out of 10, 10 out of 10, 5. Because, and that's the evolution of how the company grows and what we do and some of the mistakes we make. So, but there's been a lot of learnings. And, and the great thing is the longer you do this, the better you get at it. So we're certainly seeing more of the, you know, 7 to 10 quartile in the last few years than we had in the early years, really, because you just grow and you learn.
Yeah, as, as long as you're learning and evolving and developing uh, along the journey, then you, you're heading in the right uh, right yeah. direction, aren't you? Yeah. I think one of the things that I've read a few a few bits and listened to a few podcasts, and obviously you're building the culture. We're talking about values and purpose, but you're bringing people into the business where they can they can be themselves and 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 they have a voice. I think one of the, one of the things that I've I've understood along the journey is um, to build up that trust the leaders need to show vulnerability mm. and it's one of the things that I, I like about you mm. I, when we spoke listen to you speak now but also on LinkedIn you, you, you're quite vocal on LinkedIn but you there is no ego there it, it, you, you share your, your mistakes you share the vulnerability so if you're cascading that down from the very top it must be fairly easy for people to come on board and, and, and feel that, you know, feel that trust level and, and, and sense of belonging from the start. I hope so, because, you know, I, from my perspective, it's the right thing to do. But if it then helps people come along on the journey, then there's so much of a bonus there. Um, and, you know, certainly I think, you know, obviously I've had lots of people give me feedback on what is that, what that has meant for them in the way they show up at work. You know, we talked earlier about showing up authentically at work. Yeah. It's really difficult because, like I said, you know, it, it's funny because again you know when I'm projecting to the world and you know I'm at a conference or I'm on a podcast or whatever there is this innate need as a CEO and actually you know as companies law you know directors we have to project a positive image right you know if you're out there every day saying oh god my life is so difficult I cannot believe it's ridiculous <laughs> you know all these problems we've got today and yeah. um, you just come out as a bit of a victim and reality is, you know, th th nobody wants that. So, yeah, I think being authentic helps, but I think you also need to balance that in, in my in my role uh, as a CEO. So, for example, a great example I'll give you is, you know, one of the times I didn't show up authentically at work was during COVID. Um, we lost 70% of our business overnight. Uh and the company was in panic, right? You know, people were people were looking to get furloughed. Uh, 70%, you know, most companies, and you know this, if you lose 70% of revenue, you basically shut down. Yeah. Everybody was looking at me. Everybody. My board was looking at me. My investors were looking at me. My team was looking at me. And to be honest, I, I really struggled. I had the worst mental health in that period, not just because of what happened at work, but we were isolated. I was working for my house. Yeah. I can't go out. I'm a people person. I like to connect with people can't do any of that so I did put on a little bit of a facade in that you have to be because we, when you're leading through those difficult war times what they don't want is for your CEO to come on a call in a town hall which we had every day and say guys I have no clue what I'm doing you know can you guys help me which is authentic yeah. but it's not going to be helpful what they want is decisiveness what they want is direction and, and I, I'll be honest I wasn't authentic at that time because me being authentic, at least showing up in that way, would actually have caused more friction, more uncertainty. You know, we talk about VUCA, the VUCA world, you know, yeah, uh, uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. That was the worst time, right, when COVID came because everything went, you know, we're in professional services, work's gone, etc. So you had to almost like, you know, show up inauthentically at that time. Um, I guess it's not inauthentic because, I, you know, I did believe, I believe in my vision, I believe we could turn it around, etc. But you couldn't just sit there and go, oh, you know, I'm really sorry, guys. I woke up today and I have no idea what I'm doing, which which is not going to work. Um, so I think it's a balance. But overall, yes, I think, you know, there are times when, you know, I talk about wartime and peace times, you know, there are times when you should turn up really authentically. But sometimes, you, you know, and I think there's been a recent, I can't remember, someone published this, actually HBR published this, 
CEOs need two modes really. Sometimes you need to be very inclusive, authentic, etc. But sometimes you need to be decisive. And I think that's been a big learning for me. Part of the reason I struggled with mental health in COVID was I was I felt I was disingenuous. You know, I felt like why am I behaving inauthentically? Yeah. Because I'm I'm coming on these town halls and pretending like you know like I know what I'm doing. And I didn't. I honestly didn't. We were just like figuring this out day by day. Um, but again, in retrospect, I realized that is what it needed for me at that time. And yes, you can criticize and say, well, that's not culturally aligned. But at the same time, when you're trying to hold a 50, 60 people team together, when your business is nearly, you know, we were weeks away from going under, yeah. then it's really important to kind of, you know, make sure you've got control of the situation. Absolutely, absolutely. Because it's funny, isn't it? Because I've looked into quite a few things about building high-performing teams, obviously strong cultures with us growing this business and, and experiencing poor cultures previously. And a, a lot of um, a lot of the talk is give give other people a voice. Don't have all the answers. You, you know, uh, don't be the cleverest person in the room. Show transparency. Give other people an opportunity to share ideas and, and, and have voices. And, and sometimes stand back and say, "Listen, I don't have all the answers." But one hundred percent in that situation, there, it's not the time to be doing it, is it? There's always yeah. exceptions to the rule. Exactly, and I think that's that's a, and particularly when 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 you believe in some fundamental values around empowerment and delegation and etc. Trying to get into that mode was really challenging for me. You know, we're lucky that, you know, just through pure luck and stubbornness, we came through that phase and we did quite well after that. Um, but that's, you know, yeah, I think, you know, so showing up authentically can be good. And I think that's the right thing to do. But it's not a universal screed. You know, there are ways to adapt that. Yeah, it's not one size fits all, is it? Mm-hmm. Definitely not. Definitely not. I wanted to ask you, because you've got, um, you've obviously got multiple offices. Uh, multiple locations, work from home, the hybrid situation now. How's that? How's that affected? Not affected your culture. How's that evolved the, the, the company's culture? Do you see any challenges with that? Yeah, but my, my personal assessment, and it's really tricky because so I go in the office five days a week. Yeah. Ironically, there's nobody in the office most of the time, so it's just me. <laughs> but that's probably because you know I'm a little bit of a dinosaur. I, I came from the days when everything worked in the office, and even even though you had the luxury. And it's funny, Hedgehog Lab, right, from day one, 2007, we used to give our guys laptops because we fully believed that, you know, why would you give somebody laptops unless you believe they can work from home or work remotely? Yeah. So we always believed in that. But majority of the time, people turn up at the office because that was how professional services worked. And actually, prior to 2020, the craze was all around co-locating with clients and things like that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I really struggle with this. I think if you're early in your career and you don't have all the skills that you'd have developed, you know, for communication, feedback, etc., I think, I think you'd struggle. I think, you know, whether it's isolation, whether it's, and so for me, I think I've certainly found misalignment with people who, you know, think about this. If you're at home, you're not connected. All you hear is, you know, some company comes a weekly on a gap, et cetera. You're depersonalizing these people. You don't know me and, and the management, et cetera, on a day to day basis. And we haven't, you know, we're, we're not experts in remote working, right? You know, yeah. we, we've been flexible, but, you know, let's be honest, nine, ten percent of the time pre-COVID Hedgehog Lab was working from the office. People work from home whenever it was flexible. You, you had something, a package delivery, stay at home, but it wasn't, it was the exception rather than the norm. Um, I do think it affects culture. I do think, and not because it's the pe- fault of the people, you know, who are struggling. 
I think as a company, I don't think we've, we've, we've learned how to, you know, remote first businesses know how very well how to do a remote first culture. And there are amazingly high culture bar businesses that are remote only. I think where the problem comes is this mix of between office and remote. I don't necessarily have an answer, yeah. but I think engagement, and actually I posted yesterday, Ipsos Carry and Box did a report, which I'd recommend, you know, you read and share with people, uh, where the, the consensus is employee engagement increases 12 points when people are physically together. And yeah. we've certainly seen the worst employee engagement scores after we went remote. And obviously in COVID was fine, because if all you're doing is sitting in your home and not engaging with people beyond the meetings you have with your project team, which sometimes can be stressful and work is stressful, etc. If there isn't that 10 second water cooler moment, eating lunch with other people, making the connections and the belonging piece, of course, you're going to mis- be misaligned to the culture. Of course, you're going to sit there and catastrophize every small thing to a big thing, etc. But again, I don't think that's the fault of the people that are doing that because some of it is you, you, you don't know any different. This is the world. A Lots of people have come into their jobs in pandemic. You know, lots of people have graduated in the pandemic. And I think it's easy to then go, well, you know, the paranoia of, well, there's some, some, some other reasons. And that's where I think culture gets affected. So we've certainly seen that through the COVID period because, you know, you'd say something and, you know, people be like, I don't trust that. And it's like, well, what's the basis of that? Uh, and, and the only reason you know it is because, you know, there is no connection to the organization. But I think the point being is that's the symptom. But I think the way the organization is to solve it, we can't, you know, to your point, a lot of the, the, the team members are not equipped to understand that and take the steps needed to engage. Now, most people want to solve it, CEOs, by forcing people in the office. Yeah. I'm not sure that's a solution. But having said that, I don't have a better idea at this moment. We need to evolve and have open conversations about this on how we do better yeah. and I want to see more genuine case studies rather than the simple discussions of working from home is amazing as opposed to coming in the office is incredible and by the way if you if you argue for the opposite you know you're just completely wrong that's not the case no. it's got to be a bit more nuanced than that yeah there's too much there's there's too many reports and too many bits of information out from from the polar ends of it isn't there but nothing coming up with a with a solution in the middle really yeah yeah i think um and it's hard for the collaboration because if you, you you're you're going from one one Zoom meeting to, to the next, to another, or maybe you're having a stand-up, it, it finishes, doesn't it? It doesn't allow for, um, let's have a 10-minute chat about, you know, getting to know people on a on a personal level. It's, for me, it's the stuff that happens between the meetings, yeah. right? So, you know, as a great example, you know, my EA was in the office yesterday when I came in. It was just both of us, nobody else. And I was literally washing my cup. And there was an interesting conversation that went on there um, about something personal that... I really would, I would never have stopped her on a Zoom and said, can we have a couple of ch- minutes chat about that holiday? Because it's a business meeting, you know, we're doing a work meeting, there's an objective. So I think for me, it's, it, 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 the Zoom itself, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the time between that. And yes, we have tools like Slack, et cetera, but it's not the same. It's not, it's not the same. Um, but again, you know, I think I'm open to that. That is my perspective. Lots of people, Say that's just, you know, unnecessary. It's, it's productivity, SAP, etc. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how we solve it. I do fundamentally believe in, in the idea of people getting together. And that's why events have come back. Physical events have come back with a roar. That's why music festivals are selling out. That's why 
Taylor Swift and Beyonce doing record <laughs> tours because well, I could listen to Taylor Swift on TV and watch her on YouTube, but that's not the experience of being together with other people and having that experience. I think humans are just wired for connection, really. Definitely, definitely. It makes it so much easier, doesn't it? It's it's a bit more rigid if you're trying to force it in a in a remote environment. Like you said, it's so much easier to make those relationships, break down the barriers if we're just stood having a having a coffee with it within the office so yeah it's great one of the things that i wanted to ask you because you've been on this this um this journey culture journey over the last 16 years how have you involved the um the employees on that because of, i suppose these are the individuals that will tell you sarah we, we maybe need to change this this isn't right and quite often they'll probably have the answers to it as well so um do you feedback wise do you get involved with um employee net promoters or do you use some like office five yeah we use uh, we use i mean platforms have changed we've used everything from beacon to lattice to 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 leapsum but we do we, we do we do a weekly pulse survey now where the only question we ask is how's your last week been which is a way for leaders to get a sense of that. We've changed our engagement survey to the Gallup uh, Q12 engagement survey, which again is a great, if you're as an organization thinking that you could do worse than adopting that 12, you know, survey questions. And we move that to a quarterly one because sometimes people can have fees to do it monthly and you just get fatigue out of it because you're asking 12 questions every month. Uh, so we declare ENPS is a key metric we track at the, at the board level. It's actually a metric that in the exec team is measured on. Uh, we have loads of other ways, you know, anonymous feedback forms. When we did the integration, we set up a set anonymous feedback form. I have mixed feelings on anonymous feedback because I think if you have no accountability, people sometimes just, you know, they use it as a venting platform yeah. rather than actually constructive, yeah. um, etc. But, you know, at the same time, sometimes it's good to give people that avenue to just, you know, say what they mean without worrying about accountability. We do town halls, weekly town halls. Um, I do skip level meetings, etc. I think that the, the, the difference, though, I think, you know, and where we can get better is all of these are fine, but it's the signal versus noise, right? You know, I have had examples of companies that collect an incredible amount of employee feedback and do nothing with it. Yeah, And certainly in the past, when we've been going through difficult times, we've had this feedback where we've given you all this feedback and you've done nothing with it. Now, sometimes legitimately the right thing to do is nothing with it because it's one person's opinion about a particular thing they want and the business can't address it. But we've been really poor at communicating that and saying, okay, there were six things raised. We're going to tackle three of them and this is what we're going to do and here is how we're going to show progress. Whereas three of them, you know, even if you legitimately agree or sometimes we disagree, we can't do anything. And so a lot of the time you can feel like you're giving feedback and it's going in the ether and there's no change happening. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is improve, show that here are the things in the town halls that we did and this was a direct result of this feedback we'd got. Um, and I think visualizing that change, I think we could have done better and we still need to improve. Yeah, it, it builds confidence, doesn't it? If people are giving you feedback and they see um, a recognition of it and where possible, um, a response to it, then mm. it, it, it gives the gives your employees confidence. Exactly, definitely. Mm. One of the things that I, I wanted to I wanted to ask was, I've been reading quite a lot around in good cultures, recognizing wins, mm -hmm. um, and um, having structured sort of learning and development for people. So you've got a, you've got a career path for or a, or, a, or a journey for people that, that want it. I suppose not everybody would would want it, but the opportunity to, um, for learning. What what do you have set up at um, Hedgehog Lab? How how do you how do you ensure everybody's on that L and D journey and 
recognize successes and celebrate successes? Recognizing successes is easy. You know, again, we use platforms and tools that allows us to praise. We have an employee of the month program voted by the team. Uh, we, we, we try and actively start thinking about how we put people f forward for awards. So there's internal recognition and external recognition. We want to make sure that we're thinking actively about how we really promote our team members. Um, you know, we try and build recognition into our one-to-ones, you know, in terms of how we give praise to people and give positive feedback, not just constructive feedback um, so that's all kind of the, the the performance management stuff that goes around in terms of progression we're actually evolving this now because you know we obviously become a much bigger organization I think progression you're right I think you know we still a we're bigger organization, but still a small organization right especially if you're in senior leadership positions where is your progression you know where do you go yeah. if, if for example I mean for example somebody wants to become a CEO like you know unless they get rid of me how are they going to become CEO <laughs> in our organization so I think we need to do a bit more work our people team are working through a a much more defined progression pathway and I think there's a big fallacy and certainly I fell into this for a long time was that progression is only seen as moving up in the managerial ladder and one of the things we've never really addressed is progression of moving up in the subject matter expertise ladder yeah. so the idea that we could have a distinguished engineer that is paid and at the same level as a CEO it's just very weird. Most, you know, people like Google and stuff handle that like chief engineer, chief scientist, yeah. etc. But we, we, we just never think about it because every time you get promoted to Hedgehog Lab, you take on ma ma managerial responsibilities. And I think that was a big miss from us because I think th that path of progression assumes that you want to do things like manage people or do, you know, and I actually had people leave who said, I thought that's what I wanted, but I hated that. Yeah. And but because we only box them into that career progression, you know, they, they did not they burnt out and they left because we boxed them into a managerial role that they didn't want to do. Um, but they had to because how do you get progression otherwise? How do you get better salary, better you know, etc. So we're trying to work on, you know, career progression that isn't just about managing people and actually you can be a really skilled chief scientist, chief engineer, distinguished engineer and working on a pathway. And uh, we're not there yet. We have the right ingredients for it and particularly given the integration and the merger of, uh, of our acquisition recently yeah. that that becomes a big issue in terms of getting it right yeah perfect thank you one of the things i did want to ask you about your acquisition net sales congratulations on that thank you you're obviously bringing two businesses together very very difficult to to do two separate cultures you're on your you're on your culture journey mm -hmm. uh, con continual improvement mm -hmm. how have you how have you managed to how have you managed to mesh the two together if you like yeah one of the big pieces of advices i got when i was thinking through mna is that is precisely why most integration fails because for a long time two cultures were allowed to persist ah. so one of the things we had to do very quickly and you'll see for example we've integrated the net sales brand into hedgehog lab uh, we've integrated the team the contracts have been moved and everybody's now become a hedgehog lab employee and that was decisive and to be honest i think probably uncomfortable for a lot of people you know I've had some some low-level feedback saying it seems like we're losing the net sales culture actually that is not entirely untrue because you know we we try to integrate them right so what we don't try to do is completely ignore what net sales brings and just say agile lab is everything yeah. that doesn't work so the, the two ingredients for failure is either two culture spaces for a long time or we completely dismiss one culture and bring this culture in and that that just doesn't work. So for example, one of the places this was NetWest, Nestles had, one of the reasons why we did the deal was Nestles had better operational culture, you know, in yeah. terms of more data driven, 
more, uh, you know, fundamentally structured way of doing things. And that's why we got the CFO on, on board. And, and we've embedded that into our business. A lot of processes that NetSells have done been embedded into our business. You know, some of their key team members are promoted into senior management positions in our business, etc. But I think the, what you can't do, as I said, either let two cultures persist or completely ignore the culture. You have to integrate the cultures. And I think part of it was easy. I know you said two completely. They weren't that different. Similar businesses, similar broad values, similar professional services. And actually, the other thing we did was we started working on that nine months before we did the integration, uh, before we did the acquisition. Right, okay. So we would deliberate on how we would approach this. And actually, at the senior level, we started working, the team started working together as one company five months before the deal. So we'd have a joint kind of management meeting. How's your performance this week? How's up? So once you start doing that, you know, it values the other company. It's not a case of coming to Hedgehog Lab and by the way, here's a bunch of things you need to copy paste into how you do things. <laughs> the fact that we gave them the headspace, the time to listen to their problems, their challenges, I think was really important. We've not finished integration yet. You know, I think it's been a challenging year for us in April. When we finish the deal, obviously the market has been where it has. I think it's it's always nicer to integrate when everything's great and the market yeah, is yeah. booming. So I think, you know, there's still things we need to work out. But the great thing is because of integration, we've had very little natural attrition, which is the measure of whether integration has worked or not. Yeah, it sounds very positive, very positive. Yeah, yeah. I think you can't tell until a full year has passed. But at this moment, you know, six months into it, we feel good about it. Brilliant. And just before just before we wrap we wrap up, I wanted to ask you a, a couple of things. What does the future hold for Hedgehog Lab? I think the most important thing, and this is part of the reason why we did the deal with BGF, is we think we can certainly scale our business out on a global basis uh, a lot bigger. Um, you know, we've got some simple, big, hairy, audacious goals to to grow the team to five hundred people um, in the next three to five years. Um, obviously, I appreciate. We're probably going to be slightly behind just because of where the market is this year. Uh, but I do think we've got a sound, fundamentally good business in terms of what we do. But the most thing we're most excited about is we want to do much more bigger impact work, you know, so that's definitely something. I think we're going to solidify our values and our culture by looking at B Corp certification. Uh, and that is just okay. a way to yeah. solidify, you know, it's nothing different in terms of the fundamental things we believe in, you know, environment, sustainability, uh, equality, yeah. DEI, all the things we believe in. But actually, I think it's good to have a framework to hold us accountable to. So we're really excited about that. Uh, we're definitely excited about, you know, how we evolve some of the things that we've done to build a higher performance team. I feel like it's take, it's been the best 16 year MBA I've ever done to get to where <laughs> I need to yeah. in terms of where I need to go. So, so really excited. And like I said, from an objective perspective, uh, the plan is to grow the business 5x over the next five years. But that's, you know, that's, that's the boring business stuff. You know, you do it. it it's nice. But actually, the reason we want to do that is, you know, it allows us to have more impact on the world. It allows us to, you know, effectively live our purpose, which is build a place for more people to come, talented people to come and do the best work of their lives, hopefully. Fantastic. Some really exciting times ahead. Looking forward to uh, to following the journey and uh, and obviously to con continue to speak to you as, as you progress. One final question. What do you think is the most valuable lesson you've learned as a leader over the years that will stand you in good stead for the future? I think the most valuable lesson I've learned is, uh, and actually comes back to culture, if you are clear on what your values are, 
and you combine that with integrity because it's essential you can't just have values or just integrity you need to have a clear value system but you also need to have integrity then i think no matter what happens and you know like i said you will you will fail you will inevitably fail and you take any organization even the world's best ones like apple where it went through a torrid time but if you have both of those things you can always course correct i think that is my learning the best companies have a clear value system and leaders with integrity who lead and so that is that is probably the best thing i can say for leaders right now um have clear values have integrity and you know your culture will always course correct if things go wrong it'll follow behind yeah perfect sarah that's been brilliant thank you so much for your time because i know you're extremely busy it's been brilliant to have you on the podcast and i've i've loved i've loved chatting to you thank you very much thank you adrian as you know i love talking about these subjects so appreciate you giving me an hour to talk about it no problem at all thanks very much